We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to know something she needs. I think about everyone you need. I hold in it. Things are rooting real now. I have a senior woman, you. Hey. It's her ratio. Okay, though. It's her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> Talk about the vibe of like making Rhythm Nation and how you didn't let success ruin the formula. She walked into the studio this time with, I know what I want to do. I got the ideas and that kind of thing. The Rhythm Nation part of it evolved as we were watching TV. And so you'd watch MTV, you'd see a video, you'd see music, you'd do that. And then you'd switch to CNN and you'd see a school shooting or you'd see a drug bust or you'd see whatever. And those things were kind of the reality of the world, as they still are, unfortunately. So you would see that, and that was the thing that kind of led to the whole idea of, of, of Rhythm Nation. And I also will say that our, you know, both Terry and I agree that our favorite album of all time is, is What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. Um, and we were by no means trying to create that album, but we did think that there was a way to put those messages into song. Like, we felt like that's the, the gift that we've been given. And Janet was on that same accord. Like when the school shooting happened, I remember Janet was like, we got to talk about that. We got to write a song about that. And we had a conversation about it uh, and we couldn't figure it out. Terry wasn't there. Terry was actually building the new Flight Time studio. So when Terry gets to the studio, he's got carpet sample in one hand and he's got wallpaper sample in the other hand. And he's like, hey, which one of these should we do? And we said, no, no, Terry, we got this idea for a song. And we give this, we talk for 15 minutes, this whole thing. And, and it's not the kid's fault. And blah, 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 blah. And we're saying all this stuff. And Terry just goes, living in a world they didn't make. Mm. And we said, yeah. And Terry goes off and 10 minutes later comes back with the lyrics and just goes, here you go. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are Jam and Lewis, one of the great producing duos of our time. They worked with Prince. They made Just Be Good To Me for the SOS band. They made Control with Janet Jackson. They made Rhythm Nation with Janet Jackson. They made songs and albums with so many people, but so much of their music meant so much to me in my life in terms of stuff that I was reviewing, in terms of stuff that I was loving when I was a teenager, when I was coming up. 
Their music is so important, and their part in the history of Prince is so important. I've been wanting to talk to them for a long time. They got a new album that's out now called Jam and Lewis Volume 1. So check that out and check this out. Jam and Lewis. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on Touré Show. God, you guys have made so much of the music I have spent my life dancing to and writing about. And so it's such an honor to finally have a minute to talk to you about your stuff and your philosophies. Um, I want to talk about a lot of things, but just, you know, what do you love about making music? Because you've spent your life doing that. (laughs) Wow. It's more like, what don't we love about making music? Exactly. It's, it's, our, um, it's our oxygen. Terry always used to say I had an off switch, right? So my off switch was like when somebody would say something wrong and it would just be like, they're done, right? Mm. Um, the off switch for me was every time at, at some point I would be, you know, have a girlfriend or whatever. And at some point in the relationship, they would say, you love your music more than you love me. That was the off switch to me because I said that's the equivalent of music's not something I do. Music is something I am. So that's like saying you like oxygen more than you like me. It's like, yeah, I do because I want to <laughs> breathe. Right. Or, you know, I like water more than, yeah, because I have to drink water. Like those are the things I need to stay alive. And I think, um, you know, eventually I've been, I've been married now for 27 years. And that was the first girl that never said that to me. You know, they never mm. made that comparison. Mm. So, um, so in answer to your question, I don't know whether that, that answers your question, but that to me is everything's great about music. It's, it's, and so the fact we call it the divine art. So something that we're able to participate in and in some way, hopefully change people's lives in a positive way. There's nothing better than that. Mm-hmm. Terry, what about you? It's pretty much the same thing. You know, um, it is like oxygen. You know, my pastor always says it best to me. Like if someone loves you, they have to love what you love for you. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of like the, the, the testimonial to how someone supports you and really feels about you because someone should never ask you not to do what you love. So music is one of those things that I love to do. I love the process. I love the journey. I always say, you know, I love the journey so much. I hope I never arrive. I just I just want to do this until I just don't feel like doing it anymore. And there came close probably one time where I felt like from a production standpoint that I felt like. I didn't have anything. To be inspired for. And then, you know, along came this this young man named Usher that kind of re-inspired me and the, and the Avila brothers. And we just, it was just a different experience all over again. So it made me love it again. It just, it just made things happen for me. We've always thought of it as jam and Lewis. And I wonder within that, is there a division of labor or a division of opinions or Jimmy will tend to, you know, come up with ideas in this realm and Terry will tend to, you know, be, you know, a little sharper in this realm, like, it, or, or is it just like, 
it's always it's it's always just one one stew together. Yeah. No, no, just say all of that. <laughs> yeah. Everything yeah. you said all is that. true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't tend to go any one way. Uh, I will say, just over probably the past twenty years, Jam's done more tracking than I've done, but I've done probably more vocal production than Jam has done. You know, we right. both write. We both we both can do everything, but you know the uh, the workflow document was never signed by either of us, so we're not held to any standard. We just do what's necessary to get it done, and then it also comes down to a little bit more of a complicated scenario. It comes down to relationships. Like there's certain artists that Jam has, you know, a great working relationship. So he works with them because once you build that level of trust in a room and you get that uncanny sense of communication that you can do, it just makes it so simple just to for the two people to work because it's a me and you kind of thing. And that way people let go more. And I have my relationships with people, too. So it, it just goes back and forth just based on who we're working with at the time. You guys are one of the legendary production teams of, you know, the modern era. What's the difference between being good producers and being great producers? <laughs> yeah, I think we're still figuring that out. Yeah, I think that's a work, work in progress. <laughs> yes, sir. As the song says, what have you done for me lately? Right. No, yes. you used right. to do some nice stuff. <laughs> but what have you done for me lately? You know. Well, you do you do have to keep growing. We can't just keep pumping out the same sound because we heard that sound, you know, and we, we you know, we got to move forward. I think consistency sometimes gets underrated though. I do think uh that one of the things we always strive to do and I'm always reminded of this because when we did our first um, local press interview uh, with a guy named John Breen up at the uh, Star Tribune up in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. and it was right around control. And he said to us, you guys are the hottest producers. How does it feel to be the hottest producers? And we said, we don't really want to be the hottest producers. We just want to be warm for a long time. And that was sort of our philosophy. So the choices we made about who to work with, when to work, um, at one point in our lives took a lot of time off to raise our kids um, rather than to make music because we thought that was really important. But all of those decisions were really based on being consistent. And I think consistency is really important. And so when we, I got around to, um, I remember well, five years ago when Unbreakable came out, I remember we did the same, you know, interviewed with the same gentleman. And he said, you guys have had number one records in four decades. How does that feel? And we said, well, remember what we said the first time you talked to us? He said, what's that? I said, warm for a long time. So he said, oh, yeah, I guess so. Right. So that was always kind of our our philosophy. So while you can't, you know, you always want to change and you always want to grow. I think consistency, though, is something you, you know, you want to be the word. You want to be consistent. So we want the music to be consistently good that we do. And we're also fortunate that we work with artists that make us look really good and make us look really smart so all of those things play into it for sure yeah if you get too hot as a producer and you have a signature sound you're going to dominate the radio for a year to three years whatever it is dominate mtv when there was such a thing um but then p or the clubs then people get tired of that sound and they need a new sound as opposed to if you're 
warm and not super you like you know like i i i kind of know your sound but like when you listen broadly like there's not like a specific like you know there was a timbaland sound there was a pharrell sound you guys you know were, were a little more fluid right you know so so you know you can flow in the 80s and the 90s and the double o's and keep coming back because it's not always like i've heard that sound before that sound is 90s to me yeah i'm i'm here now um Tell me yeah, that was new- that was very purposeful, though. That was very purposeful because if you think about our when we our philosophy really in even making the records was give everybody their own sound. So it wasn't necessarily that it's a Jam and Lewis sound. Um, you know, we you always use the analogy of Taylor of like if we were a Taylor and we're making you a suit, you know, we're gonna you're gonna pick the material, the color, double breasted, single breasted, what kind of lapel you want, vent, no vent, so on and so forth. That, so that's only going to be that's going to be a suit you're going to wear better than anybody else. The thing that the suit is going to have in common is maybe the way we stitch it. And you could look at the suit and go, man, that's a great suit. Oh, I can tell by the stitching, though, that's Jam and Lewis. So that's the mm. way we kind of looked at it. But each person should have their own sound. And so it wasn't about having a Jam and Lewis sound. It was just let's make that artist the best that they can be. And then that could be, you know, if we work with Mary J, it's going to be different than Sherelle. It's going to be different than. Janet, you know, it's going to be different than Patty Austin, it's going to be different than Thelma Houston, you know, going to, you know, right. th- going to be different than Mariah, you know, but it's like when you hear Mariah, you want to say, oh, that's the best Mariah I've heard or Tony Braxton on our new record. Like, oh, that's the best Tony Braxton. Like, that's the way we want you to feel. So that's not about Jam and Lewis. It may we may be the ones sewing it together, but the style is going to be yours, you know, as well, an artist. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about. Jam and Lewis Volume One, the new album. What 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 was the mindset going into it? What did you want it to be? <laughs> I have one word answers. Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Fun. <Yeah>. Lovely. <laughs> Go ahead, Jim. <laughs> All those things. No, we we what we what we really wanted to do was was make songs as i said our our whole thing with artists was always been to make them sound the best they can possibly sound if we do that then to me we're doing our job as producers um normally there's input that goes into that and sometimes that comes from people at the record company an a and r person or somebody says we're looking for a record like this so we're doing that so we kind of go in with an instruction of what we're looking to do and in this case there was no no instruction it was just like we're going to pick our favorite artists and we're going to make what we would feel would be our favorite song by them. And the result of that would hopefully be not only do the fans of them fall. Now, I hate hesitate to say fall back in love with those artists, but I will say. Remember why they fell in love with those artists. You know, when we did the Babyface record, it was like. What would be that record that would make you if you said Babyface new song, what would you want it to sound like? And then that's what we try to do with each of the with each of the songs. The coolest thing that's happened with it, though, is that the artists have fallen back in love with themselves in a way, because when Babyface heard the finished result of his record, he was like, oh, my God, I love that. that it sounds so good. That sounds really good. And we were like, yeah, you're Babyface. Like, what do you think it's going to sound like? You know, <laughs> but it's almost like he forgot. But he never gets to hear himself without putting all the work into it. And this was one where he mm. said, you guys just produce it. So he got to hear himself the way that we get to hear him. 
and just mm. love and just love him. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Um, I, I want to go backwards in the timeline a little bit because so many people associate you guys with Janet Jackson being a little bit older. I want to talk about Prince a lot, but first let's talk about Janet. And I don't even know if you know, like a big moment in my career as a writer, I, I, cause I was doing short reviews for Rolling Stone and they gave me a bigger space to write about uh, rhythm nation. And I was like, this album is amazing. And just the way that I wrote about it, people were like, I could see people were like, oh, wow, like you're a better writer than we thought. And, you know, it's like you guys are like ascending to another level and I was ascending to another little level in my career. And it was kind of it's kind of amazing. So it's kind of amazing to finally come together with you. But control was important for me. I think I was I'm, I'm pretty sure I was still a teenager and so her making that statement really related to me of like, yes, we are like, ta- like I was a late teenager like her. So I'm taking it. I want, you know, mom and dad, like, give me a little more space, please. You know, and the, and it was so meaningful to us because it wasn't just a collection of songs. It was an album that really had a personal message. Um, and, and that was really where you guys started to ascend to, you know, the elite level. Talk about making control. Cause I know that was a big moment. Her career, it's hard to imagine was not killing it before that point. And y'all came together in Minneapolis and that's when she started to be a super duper star. And you guys started to be super duper stars. What was, what was the beginning thought of like, how, what are we going to do with control? Well, Control was actually, um, you know, the, the story was that we were supposed to do, John McClain was the A&R person at A&M Records, and he had set us up with a, to work with a different artist um, over there, and um, actually, well, I can say now because people know, it's Sharon Bryant from uh, the Atlantic Star, who was going to do a solo album, and we were excited about it. We were like, oh, we love Sharon Bryant. That's great. Yeah, let's do it. And as it turned out, for whatever reason, she didn't really want to work with us. Um, she had different ideas of what she wanted to do. So John said, well, I'm really embarrassed about that. She doesn't want to work with you guys, but is there anybody else on the roster you want to work with? And we went down the roster and we both stopped at Janet's name. And we said, we want to work with Janet. And John said, oh, that's great. You, you want to do a couple songs, you know, three, four songs? We said, no, we want to do the whole album. And he was like, you do? And we were like, yeah. He's like, oh, okay. And our whole thing was the thing we thought was missing with Janet. Like we had met her. She was beautiful. We thought she was talented when she was young and we'd see her on TV. She always had all this attitude. I always called it feisty attitude. Like she was always, uh, uh, she always had all that. But then the records she was making were all like, uh, 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 you know, and they were good records. I mean, Leon Silvers and, and, uh, who else was back there? Oh, uh, Angela Winbush. And, you know, it was like she was making really good records, but without that attitude. And when Jesse Johnson worked with her from the time, 
when he did Fast Girls, and I can't remember the other one, but he did a couple songs, and they had a little bit of that attitude, and we were like, that's what she's missing. So when we did Control, it was a combination of a lot of things. It was her kind of getting back to that a little bit, or us kind of giving her tracks to give that to her, but also doing it in Minneapolis, so it was away from kind of the comfort zone, if you will, of L.A. That was really important. Um, and also, as career-wise, the first two albums she did was people basically handing her songs to sing. And But some of that was because I don't think she was fully into being an artist at that point. She was still acting and doing fame and a bunch of other things. When we got around to Control, she had stopped doing fame, and she was focused on having a singing career. So it was kind of all of those things kind of converging together. Um, and even our studio environment, too. I mean, it was our studio. It wasn't a studio that you were walking in and seeing a million people. It was just us, you know. So it was just a great creative environment and a kind of a safe zone. And before we even started working, we just hung out with her for like four or five days. And she was like, when are we going to start working? And we said, oh, we're working. And we showed her the lyrics to Control, or at least the idea for Control. And she said, oh, so this is what we've been talking about. And we said, yeah. And she said, so whatever we talk about, that's what we're going to write about? I'm like, yeah. And she says, oh, well, I want to write about this, and I want to write about that. So it got her creative wheels turning and got her so excited about making the You were, t- you were the talking music. to her as a person, and out of that, you're like, let's make music about that. Yeah. That's pretty that much was, the process that, that was with a, everyone. Yeah, exactly. Well, I feel like in hip-hop, it, 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 well, in hip-hop, it's very much you talk about yourself. A lot of times in R&B, it's disconnected. You're saying, I love you. Who are you talking to? It's an abstract. And Control, in particular, was very much like, this is about me. Like, you know, what's going on was like, this is what I'm feeling. But we don't always get that from R&B, and so it really stood out with Control. Yeah, it changed a whole lot of things. The other, the other thing that happened, too, as far as the success of the record, and I will say, Tara and I were talking about it the other day, the John McClain was really so instrumental in, well, two things. One was when he came up to Minneapolis to hear what we had done, and we played him Control and Nasty and uh, When I Think of You and Pleasure Principle and Let's Wait mm. a While and, mm. uh, you know, Funny How Time Flies. We're, we're thinking, yeah, we're, we're good, right? And like all A&R people, he goes, I just need one more. What are you talking about? I need one. I just need one more. We said, I'll make forget you. So Terry and I had been working on our own album at that point, at least tracks for it. We got in the car and Terry put in a cassette. He started playing him songs about the third song. in. he goes, that's the one I need for Janet. We're like, what are you talking about? He said, I need that track for Janet. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just play it for it. And she likes it. Let her have it. We're like, okay, we're giving our songs away. Okay, fine. So when we next day at the studio, we put the song on. We didn't even tell them we were putting it on. And then we just watch her. Because we could always tell if she likes something, right? So we just watch her. She's kind of watching TV, not paying attention. And she kind of puts her head down. She's kind of spobbing. She walks to the door. She kind of is looking. She points at the speakers and she points to Terry and me. And she's and when the song goes off, she goes, who's that for? And we said, well, you, if you want it. She said, oh, I want it. That song became What Have You Done For Me Lately. Wow. So that ended up being the song that launched her career and kind of ended ours for a while, at least as artists. And, <laughs> but... But John, though, was the one that was instrumental in that happening. But then he was also instrumental going to AM and going to the AM lot and literally standing on people's desks and going, 
this is a double platinum record. Do you understand what these guys have made? Like he just, I mean, he was belligerent with people. Really, it was crazy. And I would never forget later on when after the success of the album, obviously, at the third single in, I think we were double platinum. And we had the party for the premiere of the When I Think of You video. And then we had on the A&M lot. And then we had, you know, we got our platinum albums or double platinum albums at that point. And I just remember thinking I was so, I was happy for John because it was exactly as he said it would be. Like he was the only one that believed in it to that point, but then he made everybody else believe in it. You know, and I don't know, six, seven million albums later, he, he was absolutely right. So so that that was really an important piece of that whole journey, you know, being successful. It functions like a memoir in that I get a sense of who Janet is. And she 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 threaded the needle beautifully in terms of being uh sexy without being sexual right like let's wait a while like i am not jumping into bed with you you know so the girls could feel like yes respect like we're saying wait you know respect me and yet still of course she's janet and she's sexy so the boys are like yes i like you like it's gonna happen eventually right (laughs) i'll wait it's cool i'll wait right yeah right so that was a beautiful. I think that's one of those things where you try to create that that mystique. Back back in that day, mystique was important. Now there's kind of no mystique. You know, they just let it all hang out on the first date. You know, here it all is. You gonna accept it? And what what you what you gonna do with all this woman? Like, like <laughs> maybe leave her alone. Why should yeah. I be so happy? Yeah. I don't want to be that happy. <laughs> so as great as control is, rhythm nation is also great. And different. And you didn't copy the formula. And so often success breeds like, just do that again. Just give us control part two. And the character is different. The sound is different. The messages are different. Um, you know, talk about talk about the vibe of like making Rhythm Nation and how you didn't let success ruin the formula. Well, there's like once again, I think it's 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 a little complex because it's a lot of things. One is there was three years in between or four years in between. So there were three years, I guess it was. So there was a chance to kind of gather new ideas and new thoughts and live life. Because to me, that's what you're writing about is life. So I think that the timing of it was interesting. Uh, once again, the environment of doing it in, in Minneapolis, the, my first you know, kind of remembrance of when Janet came to town was we had built a second studio in our building and uh, we were still in the, in the kind of the first flight time, but we had built a, like a little second room, which we had built uh, when we were doing new edition. Cause we were doing a heartbreak album in between. And so when Janet walked in, we were in the new studio, the new little studio we had made and we were doing the track to what ended up becoming miss you much. And when she walked in, she just started hearing it. And I think I pointed at a keyboard and she hit the note and that ended up being the string part on miss you much. But we hit the ground running on that record because it wasn't like, she wasn't walking into the studio like, Oh, it's all new to me. She walked into the studio this time with, I know what I want to do. I got the ideas and that kind of thing. The rhythm nation part of it evolved as we were watching TV. And as you mentioned earlier, MTV, We'd watch MTV, we'd watch BT, and then we'd watch sports, and then we'd watch CNN, right? So it was kind of that rotation. Um, 
And so you'd watch MTV, you'd see a video, you'd see music, you'd do that. And then you'd switch to CNN and you'd see a school shooting or you'd see a drug bust or you'd see whatever. And those things were kind of the reality of the world um, as they still are, unfortunately. So you would see that. And that was the thing that kind of led to the whole idea of, of, of Rhythm Nation. And I also will say that our, you know, both Terry and I agree that our favorite album of all time is, is what's going on, Marvin Gaye. Um, and we were by no means trying to create that album, but we did think that there was a way to put those messages into song. Like we felt like that's the, the gift that we've been given is not to say something, but to say it through music. And Jenna was on that same accord. Like I remember the, the one funny story is I remember when uh, the school shooting happened, which obviously not a funny story, but when the school shooting happened, I remember Janet was like, we got to talk about that. We got to write a song about that. And we had a conversation about it uh, and we couldn't figure it out. Terry wasn't there. Terry was actually at building, helping to build the, the new flight time studio. So when Terry gets to the studio, he's got carpet sample in one hand and he's got, um, I don't know, wallpaper sample in the other hand. And he's like, Hey, which one of these should we do? And we said, no, no, Terry, we got this idea for a song. And we give this, we talk for 15 minutes, this whole thing. And, and it's not the kid's fault and blah, 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 blah. And we're saying all this stuff. And Terry just goes living in a world they didn't make. Mm. And we said, yeah, yeah. And Terry goes off and 10 minutes later comes back with the lyrics and just goes, here you go. Now, which wallpaper do you think what I like? I'm like, going, <laughs> that's crazy. But I always say that. The, the brilliant thing about Terry, because I, I tend to talk in paragraphs and Terry talks in sentences, but that's what makes him such a good songwriter lyrically is because he can say what it takes me a paragraph to say. He can just say it in a word or a sentence or a title. He says everything. And that was really the example of, of that happening. So there was a lot of moments like that on Rhythm Nation where Terry was able to just sum up kind of the enormity of what we were thinking into a simple thing. And then we were able to do it because we could think of it as an album, because we didn't have to think of it as, oh, let's go in and do a single or let's do that. We were able to do the transition of Rhythm Nation into State of the World into the knowledge and then say, get the point? Good. Let's dance into Miss You Much, Love Will Never Do Without You. So those choices, even in the sequencing and all of that, really owe themselves to, like I say, what's going on, where those songs were kind of seam seamlessly put together. Um, so yeah, it was it was a lot of things that happened on that record, but um, it was a great experience to, that was a great experience to make that record. And it was a long, that it was a six cool. month record. That was a six month record. That, that took, a, that took a some time. Six months to make that record. Well, how long had Control taken? Six weeks. Six weeks? Wow. Wow. Now, anyway, the, the sound of Rhythm Nation is really interesting because I think Control was very much, you know, like contemporary R&B of that time. Rhythm Nation is pushing forward more. There's more beats within it, right? As a hip-hop guy, I'm like, I feel really at home with this because I was all hip-hop, occasionally R&B, and I'm like, yo, this does not feel like a compromise. You know, even Miss You Much has this driving beat. Rhythm Nation has this driving beat. So, uh, you know, talk about, because that was not always happening. It's a little New Jack swing, but that was different than what you did. But but somehow similar? 
Yeah, well, I mean, to me, the New Jack Swing thing was really born out of nasty. I mean, I think that's kind of the uh, the the you know the blueprint for that. But I think in uh, in state of the world and the knowledge and and that kind of swing, a lot of that swing for us came from Prince because that was the, if you listen to Prince records and you listen to the particularly the rhythm guitar patterns, there's always a swing to the R and B that that Prince did or whatever you want to call it if you want to categorize it as R and B. So that was always there. But yes, the aggression in the tracks, and you know, one of the things you may pick up on as a as a hip hop guy was we switched drum machines for Miss You Much, for instance, we had always been in the Lindrum or in the, uh, from the, you know, the Prince era, the Lindrum or the DMX, which we kind of picked up from the uh, Leon Silvers era, because we, you know, went to school at both those universities. Um, but <laughs> um, we got an SP-1200, which was a hip hop staple. And so Miss You Much, um, Escapade, and uh, Love Will Never Do Without You were done on the SP-1200. So, you know, for hip-hop heads, they will know that drum machine is, you know, one of the classics. And so I think we had the hip-hop mentality just in the aggression of the tracks and the rhythmicness of the tracks. Like, that was always important to us to, to do that. And we were very influenced by hip-hop. I always tell people, we're not of hip-hop, because, that, right. you know, to me, that's a different thing. But we love hip-hop. And we respect and Absolutely. honor, and so we wanted we wanted to do that for sure. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, 
and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. The scope and flow of Love Will Never Do Without You is just this amazing roller coaster. And when you get to that, the the big note, about three quarters away, the, the high point, like I get chills like and you know you got to listen to the whole thing the the build up the up and down and like it just i'm like wow you know like that big note that she does it's just that i mean that that song kills me talk about making that record because that record has this sort of sense of sonic ambition to me i mean all those rhythm nation records do miss you much you know rhythm nate but like that one to me is just like it wants to like break your heart well, I think it's it's sonic immersion that that record is. I mean, for me as a bassist, like that was one one of the fun records to play because it, it let allowed me to do all the things that I love to do uh, on the bottom end while all the prettiness was going on on, on top. It was it's it's one of those records that's kind of erected from the bottom up. It's it's kind of a perfect storm. And Janet just floats over the top of it because her voice is always so pleasing. So even when we're we're down on the bottom end, just doing terrible things, just destroying everybody, she's on the top, just making you feel like you're dancing on air. And that record is 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 a masterpiece, man. And then it's it's so repetitive and it's just infectious that you know how could you not love that record? I love that record myself to this day. Hell yeah! The other thing I was going to say about the record too is that it's. It's cool because, you know, that song, when we really, when we started that song, the idea was, and it was just an idea. It wasn't that we were ever pursued it necessarily, but we always thought that it would be a cool duet with Prince and Janet together, which is the reason Mm. that she sings the first verse low and the second verse high, because we always thought the first verse was potentially being Prince singing it. And um, that was one of the things about it too. And then the other thing is just sonically, like Terry was saying, it's it's very much the sounds that we were using in that song are really a lot of the sounds that we used on Nasty, um, but with a different drum machine behind it. But a lot of those keyboard sounds in that. So there was a there was a connection we thought that was important to have sonically between the two albums as we established kind of what the Janet sound was at that point. Um, but we also thought it was cool to be able to at the end to just jam, which was very much kind of our Minneapolis roots you know when we get to the love one there but do you know and it's just a groove and then bring herb alpert into it right you know and do the you know it's just like i don't know the kind of jam session part of it so it was just a lot of fun to do all of those kind of mix all those elements together and then the harmonies in that um are beautiful and and janet i will say i always say she's my favorite background singer. It's kind of, she's my favorite female background singer. My favorite male background singer is Ralph Dresman, but it's the way they can layer the vocals. And literally when you're layering vocals like that, you're basically taking notes and putting them together because they're basically kind of singing the way I would play it on a keyboard. And on a keyboard, you can put notes right next to each other. that kind of rub, but it's tough to hear it, but they could hear those and it would sound wrong as they were singing it. And then, I just go, no, trust me, it's going to sound good. It's going to sound good. And I remember a few 
if there's breakdowns that you can hear on the internet or whatever, but if you listen to just the the textures of the backgrounds and the way the notes are stacked on that record, um, it's some of the most beautiful background stuff ever. But then, you know, as I always say, the pretty top and the funky bottom, that's a perfect example of, of what that sound is to us. And you guys were always really good at um, grabbing her laugh and sprinkling that in, maybe in the song, maybe in the in-between song. And her laugh is so just beautiful, the sound of it. And it's just sort of this constant note that gets sprinkled in the middle of the album. And, and like when it's sprinkled in between the songs, you just want to keep listening to it. Those were albums that you just, you didn't skip around. You just list, and even when the song wound down and she's going to say something cute, you know, or she's going to laugh and like, just, just let it ride. You know what I mean? We're not, don't, don't, don't press forward. Just let it go. By the way, I think it's important to recognize, and I've said this before, so it's maybe not new, but um, if you think about the record, I think part of the beauty in the record is in the sequencing of the record. The fact that we yes. put the emphasis on the songs that came first, on the Rhythm Nation and that. Because I think I think what, and I won't even say A&M, but I think the record companies probably would have thought, well... If you got Miss You Much and you got Escapade and you got Love Will Never Do and you got, you know, those songs, then what you should do is let's call the album Escapade and let's start the record with Escapade and let's go Escapade into Miss You Much into Love Will Never Do, uh, you know, into maybe uh, All Right or, you know, we'll do that. And then those socially conscious songs you guys have. We'll put those on the right on the B side because this is still back in the days where there's B. We'll put those as the last four songs on the album. Yeah, we'll put a message. nice color picture. Yeah, we'll put a nice color picture of Escapade, and it'll be Janet, and that's the way we'll do the record. And it would have had a whole. It would have probably still been very successful, but it certainly would have wouldn't have had the impact that the it way ended you up did having. It, so the, the, the way I, you sequenced it made it made her seem like a serious artist. She's having her thoughts about the world. Yeah, and that to was was really important, but that was one of the luxuries we had. And you know, and once again, John McClain was was involved in that, and and it was kind of it was great because he let us just do kind of what we thought. There was never any. I remember one. There was a guy from A and M, uh, Rich Frankel. He was the art guy who did the album cover and did all that stuff. I remember he came to Minneapolis with the all the artwork, and he said, um, "It was freezing cold, by the way, because this was probably like February, I want to say." Uh, and he came to the door and I said, Hey, Rich, he goes, Hey, and I said, is that the artwork? He goes, yeah. And I took it from him and he said, I'm not going to hear anything. Am I? And I said, no. And we closed the door. So nobody got to hear anything, which was great. And that's why I say working in Minneapolis was a great environment. That's the other piece of it. People couldn't just stop by the studio and go, Oh man, that sounds like, Oh, you know, what y'all should do is do. It wasn't that it was just us in basically in the lab, just creating what we created. And at the end of it, we were having lunch with a friend the other day, and we were talking about this, that the whole idea of the long-form video for, for Rhythm Nation, I remember at the end of the process, when we were done, we were really happy with the record. And I remember we needed to get, A&M wanted to hear the record because Janet wanted to get a budget to do the video. And I think it was going to be a million dollars or whatever. And A&M was like, we haven't heard the record. How can we approve something like that without hearing the record, right? So. Um, so she said, she called, she called and she said, okay, what should, should I do? What do you think? 
should I play him stuff? Because I don't really want to play him stuff out of context. And and I said to her, I said, here's what I'd do, Janet, because she had just got a brand new Range Rover at that point, and she was living in Malibu. And I said, pick up at the time Gil Friesen was the guy who was running the company. And I said, don't go to Gil's office and play him the record. Pick him up in your Range Rover, drive him up PCH, (laughs) and then put in whatever you want to play. She said, oh, okay, good idea. So I remember, I don't know, three, four hours later, she calls me back and she said, we got our budget. And I said, okay, perfect. He played him like two songs. And I mean, who's going to turn that down? I mean, so I don't know. There's like I say, there's a whole lot of little stories along the way to kind of make things happen. But um, that was one that was significant was, you know, you're sitting with Janet Jackson. She's driving up PCH in a Range Rover and you're hearing these songs for the first time. And to me, it's like, I get it. So. All right. Take me back further to your teenage years when you're coming up with this guy who's amazing and everybody i've talked to des dickerson i talked to andre simone you know i talked to morris i've talked to jerome of course and they were all like yo we thought we were the most talented and driven musicians and in our circles we were considered the most talented and driven and then we met this guy prince and he was more driven and more talented, and this is from 14, 15, 16. Uh, talk about young Prince. What was he like? Well, I, I, oh. I'll tell you just... Oh, go ahead, Terry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Jim. No, I, we, I was we just, both I, have stories. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so I, was, I was just going to say that my, my first encounter with Prince was junior high school. Um, we both were in a piano class together, which we both already knew how to play piano. But basically, it got us out of school for a couple hours, right? So we we loved that. And I remember the teacher would give us Mary Had a Little Lamb or London Bridge or something like that and go, learn this. And we go, okay. And then they had these keyboards that were all kind of set up around. So when the teacher would leave, we'd just start jamming. Now, I thought I was a pretty good keyboard player. Prince could play rings around me. Like he was just, I'd never seen anything like that in my life on the keyboard. So he was amazing. So anyway, after I remember the class was over, they were going to do a, um, a play or a musical or something. And they said, who wants to be in the band? So we all raised our hand and they looked at Prince and they said, Prince, what do you want to play? And Prince said, guitar. And I looked at Prince like, huh? Guitar. And then they looked at me and they said, Jimmy, what do you want to play? And I said, drums. And Prince looked at me like drums. Cause we both knew each other as keyboard. You know, we thought we were keyboard players. So when we get into the rehearsal for the thing, first thing Prince does is he plugs his guitar into the amp and he rips off the solo to, there's a Chicago song called Make Me Smile, which at the time was the definitive guitar solo. He plugs his guitar in and rips this solo off note for note. And I'm sitting there going, damn, he can play the guitar. Wow, that's amazing. We get into our little rehearsal, we do our thing. And then at one point we take a break. So when we take the break, I go to the bathroom and I hear somebody on the drums. Now I'm thinking that it's the the teacher of the class. I walk back in, it's Prince on the drums, just stirring the shit up. And then he hands me the drumsticks back and I'm like, I don't even want these drumsticks anymore. These these drumsticks are on fire. I can't even hold these drumsticks. And that was, and I'm telling you, we were, man, probably 13 years old at that point, 12, 13 years old. And I never had seen anything like that in my life. So that was my first impression. 
of how genius he was. But they said in terms of the school's socio-ecosystem, uh, he was a nerd. Somebody said he was like Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, he was. But the other piece of Prince was he was definitely very, very quiet and very to himself, but brilliant. You could just tell his brilliance, the way he analyzed things. But he also was, as you know, Dave Chappelle <laughs> talked about, he was a heck of a basketball player. Um, right. He was like, you know, he was like a Steph Curry type player. Crazy handles, great shot. Right. I mean, right. he could play. He could play. And he had an older brother, Dwayne, who was basically like Prince, but tall. And to watch them play basketball together, and Prince had a huge afro, so he, he'd come up the court and his afro would be shaken as he was bouncing the ball, and the girls would all be like, ah, Prince, ah, Prince. Like, they loved him. They loved him on the basketball court, too. So he, you know, it was pretty amazing, man, back in those years, man, those junior high years, man. He, he, was, I, he was just I, something I, different. I, I played basketball with him, and to describe his style on the court, I said he moved like Steph Curry. That's what I've been saying. And people are like, wow, I'm, like, I'm not saying it's that level of stroke, but that was the way that he moved. He had that kind of fluidity. And now, uh, Des, I'm thinking of something Des said in particular that, you know, as you're coming up 15, 16, 17, you know, Prince is, is working hard, he's developing all the things, and he's great. In, the, in a studio context or in a rehearsal context, but it took longer for the performance guy to emerge. And there were shows, early shows, where Andre and Dez were very comfortable on stage, and it was clear they were outshining him on stage. And Dez's point was he had the humility to be like, I'm not as good at this aspect so I'm going to go in the lab and zone out on that and 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 bring that out and then become great at that too. And uh, surely you saw that happen. Well, from my perspective, I always thought Prince was a great performer. And I met him more in like eighth, ninth grade, um, going into, at that time, middle school that's now used to be part of high school. So we used to meet up in the North High band room. and. He didn't even go to North. He actually went to Central, uh, but he was always at Andre's house. So he always ended up on the North side. So he would always be in our band room, just playing every instrument, making you afraid to pick it up after he left it. Um, and, you know, he was just that kind of guy. He could always perform. And we had our different rival bands. Jam had a band, Minded Matter. I had my band Flight Time and they had their band Grand Central. And we'd always have battles of the bands against each other. And there was another band called The Family, which he later left Grand Central and became part of The Family. And I think his performance skills went up there because they were, that, they were a bad set of brothers. They could play. And uh, Sonny Thompson was in that band as well, who was one of the phenomenal musicians in Minneapolis. And um, I've always known him to be, a he was quiet kind of introverted but he was always a great performer he was you know he wasn't to the level of national stardom type level but who is <laughs> at 15 um it, it takes time to hone that skill you know you can't get on the stage with uh mick jagger and be mick jagger 
you, you have right to away. allow that to, to develop. So, Did y'all know Bernadette? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because one of my, he, he lived with Bernadette Anderson for most of his teens. And one of my theories was that, you know, she is critical in that she was very loving, extremely maternal. I mean, Jerome talked about her as like a second mother to him and a lot of people in your generation um, and extremely encouraging of his early efforts, which you need when you're just starting out. But at the same time, she has six kids of her own. She's divorced. She's pursuing an advanced degree. I'm like, she didn't have a lot of time to be on top of him, like eat your vegetables, da 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 da. So he's out and about, like, you know, trying to make it happen. And Morris is like, yo, he's showing up at my house at three in the morning. Like, yo, I want to record a song. He's at the strip club with Big John, like jumping on stage there, like, so he's able to run around town performing and pursuing music 24 hours a day the way if your mom was on top of you, you might be like, yo, I, I got to be in bed by 10 o'clock. Yeah, he definitely made his own schedule. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a good theory, but still, you know, one, one thing about Bernadette, she had rules and <laughs> Andre will tell you she was she was on top of her kids. so. Prince, when he was there, he had to be under that house rule. Whatever the rules were, he was part of the family at that point. So I'm sure there were some rules that kept him in place. But the 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 real side of it is the guy was just so driven and he was so talented. It was no way that you were going to keep him from it. The only thing that probably would have tragically kept him from it would have would have been just bad management and just, you know, misrepresentation. But as an organic musician, songwriter, producer. He was already that, even at a young age. <clears throat> uh, case in point, like all of our groups were a little different. Like in order to get gigs, we all had to be like jukebox bands. We had to play whatever the song of the day was. But all of us were striving to make our, as we called them, originals. So <laughs> uh, Jam had a, a Mind of Matter. His group was like a singing group. And they would instruct these Philly International type songs or whatever. I was flight time. I was a funky guy. I'm trying to. We had uh, Cynthia Johnson who sang uh, with lip sync. She was our singer vocalist. Uh, and so we were doing more Shaka Khan ish type things and, you know, constructing these type of songs. And then Grand Central was more like Sly and the Family Stone. So they were making these original recordings and original songs. Man, as teenagers, and if you listen to them now, they're actually really good. But at that point, there's no way that we could have known the measure of, of what it could be or even what it was because we were in Minneapolis. There was no comparison. We couldn't compare ourselves to anything that was uh, extraordinary. It was just where we were. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of theories of what might have been and what could have been. No, Prince, man. Prince was a self-made man because God just made him that way. That dude was just special from the beginning and no one can take credit for that. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, folks talked about he had a vision and he was stuck on it. And you couldn't talk about if we make it. It had to be when we make it. And if you weren't on that, then you weren't hanging out with him anymore. Well, that's probably reflective in, in, in the way he eventually left his group behind he left grand central and wanted to seek something else and in between there he went and played with the family because he just knew he had to go do it on his own and that's what he did so he made the moves he sacrificed the time the effort and i'm sure you know a lot of business dealings that weren't necessarily uh very profitable where he lost a lot but he got it all back in the end you know, it's just this kind of just the territory. I think it's tough to get people to go along with you sometimes, too, though, because um, what happens is you have a vision and, and it's something you want to do. And you have a work ethic where you're willing to basically outwork everybody. You know, that theory about how hard work, you know, is, is better than, you know, whatever talent. I, I can't remember the exact saying. But Prince was that unique person that had the work ethic where he's going to outwork you. Even though he's the most talented person, like he with the amount of talent that Prince had, he wouldn't have to outwork you. But that combination of somebody who's going to have all that talent, but then outwork you, too. You can't mess with that. And that's what he was. But then finding other like minded people that have that. A lot of times you're not going to find that, not on the level that, that you're trying to do it. So you have to break yeah. away and just do it on your own. You really do. Yeah. I mean, when we, and it was that, funny because. That's the reality, Jam. That is absolutely yeah. the re- reality. And, and we can sit there and try to candy coat it all you want. But when you have that vision to be successful at something, uh, you see, there's two ways that it works. Either someone's on the same level with you, with the same level of commitment as you, or you're dragging them along. So at a certain point, that becomes an anchor. So it's better to cut bait and just go and do what you got to do. And you can always come back and rescue people. 
throw them a lifeline and, and come back. But I got to swim to shore and get my stable stability back. I got to go get what I got to get. I'll be back for you. I mean, uh, even the way the time was formed, that happened with Alexander O'Neill. He had yep, an expectation just that just did not fit the, the time. OK, so he wasn't willing to make the sacrifices at the time. But as a brother of ours, he's, we said, OK, cool. Hey, man, when we get our thing going, we're going to come back and get you. We'll be back. We got the little here, sit this donut. Just sit right there. We'll be right back. But so he kept doing whatever he was doing. And when we got the opportunity, we threw him a lifeline. And, you know, it works that way. And that's just the reality of, of what we do. I, I, I mean, it, it, I'm sure it was great working with him. It was also hard working with him at times, right? Um, some of the greatest times I could have ever had and some of the most difficult times because of, um, not because of him, because of circumstances that he allowed himself to be a part of. So um, when we start, first started working with him, you know, our main thing for him was to be clean. We wanted him to be clean. And the so look? In, in terms of drug free, because it affected his being, it affected it the way he thought it affected his performance. So what we did is we put money aside for him to go get himself together. And um, he did. When was that? Pardon? When was that? I, I can't hear you. When was that? You said you put money aside for him to get himself together. When was that? This was uh, uh, after this was on the second album, I think it was. Um, yeah, this was after the we had done the first album with him, and this was going into what became the Hearsay album. Yeah, and we said before we start working on Hearsay, we need to get you cleaned up, and and we'll pay for it. But before we do the record, you have to come into it in the right way, in the right frame of mind, in the right health. From the opioids. I don't know what, whatever it was. Whatever it was, it wasn't good. Yeah, it wasn't good. Cause, yeah. Because cause when y'all were teenagers, he was a teetotaler. He wasn't doing anything. Well, I didn't know Alexander O'Neill when I was a teenager. Oh, you, oh you're talking about Alexander. Oh, I thought we were talking about Prince. <laughs> you talk, oh, no, not, not Prince. You talk no, about no, Alexander, no, Alexander O'Neill. And we're talking about Alexander O'Neill. No, we gotcha, never gotcha. I never no, knew I mean, Prince no. did Prince, no. No, no. Prince, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. Not absolutely wave that one off. Prince, I never knew Prince busted a grape. Right. I've never seen Prince eat more than three potato chips. And, right. and those would be Doritos. <laughs> I like right, <laughs> right, right. I'm curious what you learned. Um, just working with him and being in the camp with him. I know that Jerome talked about when he started talking professionally to Janet, Prince fired him because he's like, I can't have you spreading my special sauce around. So I know like y'all learned some things like working with him that like, you know, w w you know, that he didn't want you taking other people. So what was he, what was, what is, what was he teaching you? I guess the greatest thing that that I learned from Prince uh, work ethic, how much work it takes to go into what you do if you want to be successful at something. Um, certainly, just because of how we came up and the music that we played, we all learned kind of some of the ingredients in the music. But 
I mean, this that any probably just about any musician could figure out most of it, but there is some things that a lot of people don't get. There's some little nuances that goes into Minneapolis music that a lot of people don't really understand. <clears throat> it's very difficult to you know conceive what it is, and that would be the thing that I think he was more fearful, especially with us, about us giving the sound away of what it took to make that feeling. And that's where we had our rub. It was it was more that than anything else. You know, business and all that other stuff, that's all whatever. But the music, he did not want to give the music away. And then with Jerome, he had a whole nother thing because that that was part of the personality of the Minneapolis thing. Jerome just became a just a fixture with Morris and then later on Prince. And he just didn't feel like he could as Prince used to call it, moonlight. <laughs> well, you know, you, you're hanging with me, but then you're moonlighting on me doing other stuff. And I just don't know if I could be a part of that. So I think it wasn't that he was afraid of of, of losing anything, but he just felt like he was losing control of his thing because Jerome was part of his thing. What, can you talk about what some of those sonic nuances that you're talking about? What are, what are you referring to? Man, if I tell you, I had to kill you. <laughs> well, come come think, on, the brother. The brother I, 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 here I tell you, I had to kill you. <laughs> no, there, there's a certain there's a certain way that a, a certain aggression to Minneapolis music, and I don't know why it is. It's it's, it's kind of an innate quality of how we play things and how we go about things. It's just a little different than everybody else, and everybody else plays it, but they don't necessarily attack it the same way. If you ever watch Prince play a bass, or if you ever watch him play a guitar, if you watch him play a keyboard and he's sliding around and he's he is just torturing every instrument that he's on. Like the bass, he's just killing it and slapping it and killing it. And he's damages break. I'm surprised he didn't break his strings more often. He he and he plays the keyboards like the electronics have to be hollering, let me alone, man, let me alone. Because he he he's so aggressive with everything, and that's just part of the the Minneapolis sound. It's just how we did it. It was it's different, you know. And it's and it's um, tough. It's tough to it's tough to teach. You can't really teach it to people. It's it's no. like I said earlier, like about like even in hip hop, like it's like there's people that are of hip hop that it's more than just a music genre or what it, it is, you know. It, it's kind of the environment of it that kind of hones that. And to me, that's what Minneapolis was. You had, if you, you knew what it was without saying it, it's hard to even put it in words to define what it was, what it was. But you could tell people from Minneapolis all had it, whatever yes. that was. And it's tough to explain it, but you, you just yeah. know. And you hear people play at it like they think they know what it is, and then they kind of do it and you can kind of, we can always tell we're like, mm, yeah, that's, I, I'll get you. I, yeah. Good try. That's, that's nice. You. That's nice. Yeah. That's, nice. <laughs> that's cute. <laughs> that's nice. I've heard some of the story from other people, but I want to hear it from you because you know, when you ask the people who lived it, sometimes the story that, that, that has come down to you is different. Um, but there's a story going around about why he fired y'all, 
and whether or not it was righteous or whatever, what happened? Well, he fired us because of, uh, he had told us not to do, uh, not to produce anything outside the time. And, um, and his reason, as Terry said earlier, um, was he didn't want the sound given away. He said, I don't want the, the sound given away. And so we were very conscious of that. And we kind of felt like, well, we're not going to give the sound away because first of all, that's your sound. That's the sound you created and Morris created. And we can't really do that anyway, exactly like you guys do it. So we wouldn't want to do that. We wouldn't want to cut our own throats. So why we wouldn't do that. So when we wait, went out and started making records, um, I mean, Just Be Good to Me has absolutely nothing to do with the Minneapolis sound whatsoever. We went to a different drum machine. Um, you know, the whole, I mean, our whole thing was let's make the best SOS band record we could make. And we went down to Atlanta. I mean, the, I think it's a pretty famous story at this point. We went down to Atlanta on a break from the time tour. Um, and we had four days off in New York. So we flew down to Atlanta. We did a couple of the, we worked on a couple songs with SOS band, which was great. And as we were leaving, it started to snow. And we were trying to get to San Antonio for the next time gig. So when it starts snowing, <clears throat> we call it in Minneapolis, what the snow was, what we would call a dusting, meaning that you just would take a broom and sweep your, you wouldn't even take a, a shovel out. You just take it and sweep it off, but it shut the airport down. And I remember Terry and I were like, literally, I mean, anybody that's been to the Atlanta airport knows this, like it's all these different terminals. And we were literally going from terminal to terminal, trying to get on any plane to get out of there. Like our plan was. Let's just get a flight out of here to anywhere, and then we can connect to San Antonio from wherever we get to. And at one point in time, I remember we tried to get the rental car back that we had, and we thought, maybe we can drive. What's the closest next airport we can drive to to get? I mean, it was like nutty stuff. Anyway, we missed the gig. Um, Prince thought we were down there seeing some girls, and he said, that's what you get for seeing some girls. And he thought it was funny until later on, a picture of us in the SOS band showed up in Billboard magazine. And we were trying to hide all like he, he would get a billboard every week and we would try to hide it like because we didn't want him to see the picture. Like so he'd, he'd be like, where's my billboard? And we'd be like, I don't know. And we'd be hiding it and stuff. And finally, he found out about it. So he didn't say anything about it. So that's summer. So as it turns out, the same day we're going to go to the studio to mix the SOS band record, Prince calls us that morning and he says, meet me at Sunset Sound at six o'clock or whatever and we're like okay so we go to sunset sound when we get to sunset sound interestingly enough the accountant was there so terry and i thought oh the accountant's there i guess we're getting fired he's going to give us our last checks but the accountant just walked by us and said you guys have a good session we're like okay so we go into this little room and in the little room was basically terry and myself Jesse, Prince, and Morris, just the five of us. And Prince goes, I told you guys not to produce outside the time, and you guys did the SOS band, so you're fired. And we were like, huh? He says, you're fired. So I was like, okay, cool. So I got up and walked out. Terry stayed in there and tried to reason with him a little bit. I'm saying you and didn't want to fight for it? It wasn't a fight. He he was running stuff. I mean, that was what it was. I, di I didn't feel like I yeah. we had anything to say. 
Yeah, this wasn't the first this wasn't the first battle that we had with this. I mean, we had done some stuff before with Climax and he had told us the same thing. You know, and we went to the studio and he told us, you know, I don't want you producing outside stuff. You know, this is this could be a hit. At first, he laughed at the music that we played. But then he said this could be a hit. And then he gave us all kinds of information to mess it up. But then um, he said, you know, I just don't want you guys out, out giving away the sound. I don't want, you know, you producing outside things. And we, you know, like Dumby said, OK. And, you know, we drank the, we drank the Kool-Aid and walked away. And when we got outside to the car and drove away, we was like, man, is he crazy? <laughs> like we woke up like we're not doing anything to hurt him. It's not taking anything away from him. We're not even at that point doing it for money. We just have a need to be creative because we're creative beings. That's just who we are. So we were just out there trying to be creative and just better ourselves, you know, and, you know, if, if we better ourselves, that means it's better for the group. So um, it just mushroomed uh, into this thing after the SOS thing where he said he had to let us go. And um, so I sat there with him and I had a few minutes to try to say, well, why would you do that? That doesn't make sense. I mean, the music that we're doing doesn't sound anything like the time. And he didn't want to hear it because, you know, once again, his is his world, his way. So. And went outside and, you know, we looked at each other. What are we going to do now? I guess we'll go mix this record over here at the other studio with Steve. And that was, you know, just be good to me. Same day. So I always like to say that just because this perspective is a, a little different now, especially in hindsight, you know, he freed us. It was the best thing in the world that could have happened for us to us while it didn't feel good. It was destined to happen because. Um, I, I have a nature where I can't be controlled. It's just not going to happen. I'm, I'm going to fight back at a certain point because our relationship was always based on that anyway. It didn't matter what it was, whether it was sound check where I'd be playing and he'd be calling me out on something over the loudspeaker and I'd just go up to him and get in his face and say, what'd you say? Sounds fine. Okay, great. Like, because he always liked to push you and he, he, he just always loved to challenge you. And I'm okay with that because, you know, I'm a great soldier because I'm a great general. You understand? I can be both. So I, I don't mind being in the, uh, in the army behind as a cadet or whatever, behind a great general. And he was a great general, I have to tell you. Um, but he would challenge you to the point of it would just make you sick and be like, man, you're not even being fair. And if you want to challenge me, please challenge me, you know, in a way that's respectful to me because I'm a grown ass man. I'm not, I'm not going to take all that, but you know, Prince knew how to push the buttons in everybody, but that's how he gets the best out of everybody. It's just part of his character. By the way, that's the thing that he loves so much about Terry is Terry always told him straight up. Like Terry would just go to Prince would go on his little rant about something. And Terry would go, man, you know, that's bullshit. Prince. And, and, you know, <laughs> that's why Terry, that's that's why Prince loved and respected Terry so much, because Terry, you know, he had a bunch of people around him that would just kind of go, yeah, oh, whatever you think, Prince. And Terry would be like, you don't really believe that, even what you're saying. And, you know, it, they used to have great conversations, big, long, great, deep conversations about stuff. Yes. And, and he, he respect Terry. I mean, uh, Prince respected Terry so much for that. 
So, so since we're here at this point in the timeline, "Just Be Good to Me" is one of the great records of that era. It, I've been, I've actually been jamming on that song over the last week because um, they they mentioned it on This American Life, and I went back into it. It's so well written and structured, and how she lays out her feelings, and you know, in that in that second, you could call it the second verse, the second part of the first verse, when she's like. I feel like you're already mine when you're with me. And it's like, oh, oh, wow. Like, they talk about reputation. I don't care about reputation. Just be good to be like, oh, man. It's just like, it's a, it's a short story in the way it just so clearly lays out other people say this, I say this, you know, I don't care. Like, wow. Like, and the the music, you know, I mean, Whitney Houston did the same territory, but she did it in a very sweet way. You like you, you could rock the clubs with that joint. Talk about what you were trying to do with that one. Well, just be good to me. We were using first of all the blueprint. I mean, we we Terry and I were very analytical about music, and particularly when we were working with bands and and artists that already had had some success and then maybe had lost their way a bit. We were always good at kind of getting them back on track because we could assess what worked and what didn't work, where the where the wrong turn was. Um, Terry always uses the analogy of Barbara can't cut the back of his own head because, you know, mm. you can't see back there. So we were always like the barbers for the artists. We always said the artist would be like, well, I, it looks good to me. And we'd be like behind from our perspective going, yeah, but we can clean that kitchen up a little bit back there. You know, we can, you know, got to get that line lined up back there. So that was our thing with SOS band. Um, Take Your Time, Do It Right is like one of the all-time great records mm. of all time. And so that's where they Hell started yeah. from. So we were able to take a record like that and say, analytically, what are the things in this record that worked, that made you feel that way? And it could be the repetitive bass line, which just goes over and over and over again, the way the melody is set up, the fact that the instrumentation on it was very... Um, you know, glockenspiel bells. And, you know, there were elements that you just weren't necessarily hearing the mixture of in music. And we basically took all of those elements and then put them into just be good to me. You know, the repetitive bass line, the repetitive melodic line, the glockenspiel bells, uh, the kind of relentless beat, that type of thing. And and the, all of those kind of elements kind of went into it. But what was really cool was the SOS band as a band they were excellent musicians. So there's mm. things on that song that are so amazing that you maybe your ear hears, but it's not aware of. One of them is, well, we call him Pimp Daddy, but Jason, the organ, the organist, there's organ on that song that's just amazing. It's just in the background kind of yeah. swooping around, but it's so amazing. And then, um, oh, what was the guitar player's name, Terry? He was so Bruno. good. Bruno. His licks and his like little things that he would do on the guitar <clears throat> were amazing. Um, they just they were just great as an actual band. And as a couple of young, you know, fledgling producers, I can't overemphasize how great it was that they allowed us to do what we did because we hadn't experienced that, right? We're coming out of the Prince thing where we're not even a lot of times allowed in the studio to even watch what's happening. Right. So they trusted us. They were like, you know, we came in with an 808 drum machine and it's like 808 drum machine. Like that was like some new stuff. It was like, no, no, this is going to be cool. 
So they were very trusting of us. And Abdul Rauf, uh, who was the trumpet player and one of the leaders of the group also. So there was a lot of trust that went into it. But that was the thing. The cool thing about it, too, was how, like Terry said, we literally, very Hollywood fashion here, we literally left Sunset Sound depressed because we had just gotten fired from the time. And we walk, we, we don't walk, we drive over to a studio called Larrabee Studios. And in talking about the research that we would do, we knew that Steve Hodge, who was the guy we wanted to mix the SOS band, Steve Hodge had mixed um, all the Solar Records stuff. The Whispers, Shalimar, Lakeside, everything that came through Solar Records, Steve Hodge was the mixer. And we knew from looking at the liner notes on the back of the album that Steve Hodge worked at Larrabee Studios. So I remember we went over to Larrabee Studios and basically found Steve Hodge and said, we need you to mix our record for us, right? And so when we walked into the studio, I guess we kind of looked depressed. And we hadn't even actually met Steve at this point. I think we'd maybe just talked to him on the phone. And he said, hey, nice to meet you guys. He said, hey, nice to meet you, Steve. He said, what's wrong? We said, oh, we just got fired from the time. He said, wow. And he said, yeah. He said, well, he said, I don't think you guys got anything to worry about because this record here, this is a smash. And he hit play and it came on. And we were like, oh, with the Steve Hodge mix on it? It was like, oh my God. And we were, and we were good. We were good. And the, the epilogue to the story on that was, so every week we'd go to the accountant's office to go get, to pick up our little checks, right? So we go to the accountant's office, right? And to pick up our check, I figure, we figure it's going to be our last check or whatever. And so we pick up our little checks and then they go, well, we'll see you next week. We're like, okay, cool. So we go back a couple more weeks and get our little checks and we're just like, well, I guess they're going to keep paying us. Okay, cool. So then later on, we go to a concert at the Greek theater and it's, I think it's all the Solar acts, Whisper, Shalimar, all those acts, right? And so we're backstage. This guy comes up to us with a microphone and he goes, I heard you were fired from the time. What's the bottom line? He puts the microphone in our face and we're going, dude, who are you? We don't even know who you are. He goes, Lee Bailey, radio scope. We heard you were fired from the time. And I'm like, no, man, we're just here to watch a concert, man. We don't know what you're talking about. Right. So fast forward. Now we go to the accountant's office the next week to pick up our checks and they go, oh, sorry, guys, we can't give you your checks this week. We said, why not? And they said, well, we heard you were fired. And we laughed. We said, Man, we were fired like a month ago. Where'd you hear we were fired? They said, it was just on the radio. Lee Bailey, radio scope. <laughs> so, so that was the thing. And so as it turned out, then and then the final piece of it is that Prince then had Jellybean call Terry. And Jellybean is the one person that Terry's known longer than me, probably. Uh, cause they, they knew each other even before I, I met Terry and he said, uh, Hey, uh, Prince wants you back. Uh, you know, we're going to do this movie, purple rain, whatever Prince wants you back. And Terry said, okay, well, cool. We'll, you know, we'll figure it out. Um, what about jam? And he said, Oh, he doesn't want, he doesn't want jam back. And I swear to God, if t- t- Terry, if Terry was like the Hulk, the phone would have disintegrated. 
Because Terry took the phone, and I remember him just having it in his hand. This is one of the big old-fashioned phones. There's no cell phones at this point. And he goes, you tell that little man. I'm like, Terry, Terry, no, it's cool, man. I said, make the movie, man. Do your thing, man. He said, and he slams the phone down. And that was like the solidifying moment for us. Like, it was Jam and Lewis from that moment on. It was like no ifs, ands, or buts. We, We were on our path. And of course, that turned out to be a you know just be good to me turned out to be the hit record, and there was no looking back from there. So, but as Terry said, he freed us to do that. Literally, the night that he fired us, if you want to put it that way, we went and mixed "Just Be Good to Me," which became our first big hit record, and we were on our way at that point. Thank you so much to Jam and Lewis for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.